Welcome to the Living Clean Podcast. I'm your co-host Mason S. With me as always is Travis K. This podcast is not meant to replace meeting, sponsorship, step work, or service. This is meant to be just another tool in your recovery toolbox. Our guests are here to share their experience, strength, and hope with recovery through Narcotics Anonymous. Thank you for joining us. All right, welcome back to the Living Clean Podcast. I am Mason S. I'm an addict with me as always is my man TK. Yeah, yeah. We're back for another episode. We got a very special episode tonight. Um, me and Travis, you know, ever since we got clean, we've been really uh, interested in the history for some reason. I don't know why, but uh, it's always been something that's been near and dear to us. And it's always a good debate, you know what I mean? Yeah, we had a, it sure <laughs> is. And uh, we've uh, had the opportunity to first see these our guests tonight on YouTube. And then I actually met Chris down at Out of the Darkness doing his presentation. And so tonight we've got Mr. Boyd P. and Mr. Chris B. All right, um, fellas. Hey, thrilled to be here with you guys. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Thank you very much for the invitation. This is exciting. Oh, yeah, we're excited, too. Uh, if you want to start, Boyd, you want to start with... Um, you want to talk about when you got clean and maybe give your home group a shout out? Be glad to, man. My clean date is uh, April the 15th, 1987. So <clears throat> I um, live here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and my home group is Primary Purpose, meets 730 on Wednesday nights. It's a uh, step and tradition study. And uh, so if you're in the Raleigh area and you'd like to come to a really badass step in tradition meeting. Come, come visit us at uh, Primary Purpose. We'd love to have you. So, um, you know, let me think here. Yeah, so let's go on to Chris, and uh, we can back up and go forward and do all that sort of stuff. Any other information you would like for me to say, Mason? I, no, that, that's fine. We'll go on to Chris and. Yeah, so I'm Chris Somnatic. I got clean uh, May 21st, 1990. Um, it wasn't my first time going to Narcotics Anonymous. Um, I was first introduced in a probably 1987. Um, and so I got into recovery through Narcotics Anonymous in Rhode Island. And I've been in North Carolina since uh, 1994. My home group is based out of Durham. It's called Just for Today. It, um, meet from 7 30 to 9 and we've actually stayed on zoom since the pandemic started and have uh, continued to be on zoom all right oh uh, we're extremely grateful that both of you were willing to come on here and do this and tonight the topic we're going to talk about the history of na and i think uh before we get started diving into the history uh we'd like to talk about why the history of our fellowship is important so either one of you guys that want to start in that direction yeah i'll, I'll jump in first uh, so i think um I'll, i'm gonna read this quote and i think it uh speaks very nicely to what boyd and i felt but maybe couldn't articulate real well about why history and our fellowship's history is important. And the quote is from uh, a memoir called Just As I Am. And the quote says, when you know your history, you know your value. You know the price that has been paid for you to be here. 
you recognize what those who came before you built and sacrificed for you to inhabit the space in which you dwell. And what I like about that quote is, you know, there's a degree of kind of self-centeredness um, that I experience. I know our literature talks about it. Uh, and kind of getting out of that self-centeredness and part of that almost spiritual awakening is starting to realize like, you know, I'm here because of the service of uh, countless people who I will never know. And for some of those people, the service was incredibly, um, took a lot of courage and a lot of perseverance. And so in some ways, understanding uh, and appreciating history is, is a form of gratitude and also can be a, um, a source of inspiration. Uh, for continuing to to serve others. And so, you know, what I like about this quote in particular about, you know, recognizing what those who came before me built and sacrificed, um, I would like that in terms of thinking about the people that made NA possible. Uh, but I also like to think about it in terms of like what you and Travis are doing. You know, you guys are being of service right now in a way that other people inhabit this space because of your efforts. And so that, that's kind of, you know, for me, why history has been uh, important. I think uh, the gratitude piece of recognizing, like, you know, it would have been very easy for me to have been born at a different time or a different place and to not have a, had Narcotics Anonymous available as, a, as an option. Yeah, for me, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, um, what got me interested in really this is why our history is important. And I don't know. I just looked at, I was at a world convention in San Antonio, Texas in 2009. And I looked out over this sea of people and, uh, and I, it just, uh, I kind of got one of these God shots. It was like, you know, I wonder how this fellowship started that saved my life. And and that was the that was what my thinking was that saved my life. And that usually was not necessarily the way I thought. And so that was when um, eventually I met Chris a few months later and we started on our journey of learning about, you know, the beginnings of um, of N.A. and uh, even further along uh, of what, you know, what was available to somebody who seeking recovery before NA became available. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, one of the questions that Chris and I were always kind of amazed with is like, what if my dad <clears throat> was addicted to opiates uh, or my grandfather addicted to opiates? What, um, what avenues and what, what was available for him, you know, uh, or my, you know, for that matter, my grandmother or my mother? Um, and those were always kind of lingering questions that we had when we started uh, our journey of, of just learning about, you know, what what was available uh, for the person that was addicted uh, before, you know, and I came along. So, so how long have you guys was, been? How long you know, have you guys been working on this? So, um, First of all, it's a great partnership. I love always hearing Boyd share that story. We always bring different aspects, and Boyd's going to pick on me because he calls me the fact checker. But it was, that was uh, 2007, the ah, convention. Okay, as opposed to 2009. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm old, and I'm it's gray matter up here now, Chris. <laughs> yeah. 
15 years difference between us. That's right. <laughs> That's it. Um, so, yeah, so it was, it was uh, 2007 when he got back from uh, the San Antonio World Convention. And it was just a great way that he described that, you know, back then and the way he describes it now, kind of like the impact and power of a world convention and being around that many addicts in recovery and beginning to realize, like, this is so much bigger than me. And how did I, you know, have the opportunity to become part of this? And so I always love the way that Boyd, you know, kind of describes that moment um, and having that kind of, you know, awakening of the history spirit, so to say. And so we we met through a, a sponsee of, of uh, Boyd's uh, who knew that I was interested in uh, NA history. And, and we started uh, meeting for coffee and discussing and sharing stuff. Yeah, we, neither of us really, um, if you'd asked us back then, you know, do you think you'll be doing history presentations or anything like that? Or the answer, you know, was no. It was just simply like, kind of like a quest because it was hard to get history. It was hard to like find archives to see like original material and so forth. And so part of it just started as kind of a quest to like, you know, to learn and preserve history. So what did, did you guys go out? Like you, you described it as a quest. Did you go out and collect all this information and then try to put the pieces together? Or did you kind of start at the beginning and work your way forward or yeah I mean, I, go ahead Chris. I, I'll, I'll just say this and then Boyd can you know kind of talk into that but you know again Boyd and I have, you know brought things together that have allowed us to be much greater than the sum of our individual parts and we um, both brought specific kind of experiences and opportunities that contributed to this and you know in all seriousness Boyd had yeah, like he had, he was self-employed, so he had a little more flexibility and he had, you know, some financial resources. Um, and so he was able to start connecting with people, some of whom have been guests on your show and say, hey, you know, I'm interested in like acquiring some, you know, old uh, literature and so forth. And, um, and I tagged along because I've got a scanner and I'm wanting to try to digitize and, uh, everything and so forth. And so that that's kind of how it started, and and it was really kind of was a beautiful story of being entrusted with uh, uh, someone's archives, and really uh, very naively getting into the process of digitizing uh, the the archives of a member who had been involved with the writing of the basic text, and then taking those archives after they've been digitized and putting them in three ring binders with protective sleeves. And, table of contents and so forth. And our care and attention to that, I think gave us some credibility and I think opened some other doors for other archives and so forth. And at one point uh, we were approached about doing a presentation and um, you know, it was kind of like, what do you want to do it on? And it was, well, what do you have? What do we have the most information on? We have most information we have is on basic text. And that's kind of, that was kind of the starting point. Boyd, Boyd had like all those relationships and connections that I didn't have that led to archives and led to invitations to this convention and so forth. Yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> no, I mean, uh, no, we didn't set out with a a set goal on anything. Uh, it was really the very first thing we set out on a quest for 
was a book called My Years with NA, uh, with NA by Bob Stone. And at the time, um, there had only been one printing of it, and there had not been any bootlegs that came later. Um, so it wasn't easily accessible. And Chris had a copy, but he wouldn't loan it to me. It's the only thing he wouldn't loan to me because, it, I mean, he learned that, uh, you know, it, he just didn't want to let it out of his sight. And so we... Um, we started on a quest with that, uh, and I ended up I ended up actually buying one, and then I had somebody uh, loan me their copy, and so we uh, started by reading that, and then the first thing that happened was digitizing a person's archives, and that led to <clears throat> digitizing. Uh, that led to me inviting Boes, who I did not know of or anything like that, but I learned about during this early process and invited him up to speak at our my home group's 25th anniversary uh, with the home group I was at that time. And so that led to me asking him if he would like, you know, his archives digitized and he's saying yes. And of course, when he did, the whole room started spinning that I was in. I was like, oh, me. So I, I went down to uh, Atlanta, Georgia uh, with my pickup truck and met him down there and we went to his mom's house and uh, there were uh, something like 25 boxes of archives that uh, we brought back here to my living room and put them on, put them on the dining room table. And uh, as soon as we, we got here six or seven o'clock one night and Chris had called Chris and Chris plays baseball. And so uh, he, Chris comes over in his baseball uniform you know, just uh, just and we're just all enamored and looking at this stuff. And so we digitized that and um, and that led it led. Um, that was kind of the basis of uh, <clears throat> the first presentation that that uh, we created was a history of the basic text because we had had the most information on what that did. And then that led us. That <clears throat> led us. I had some a uh, harebrained idea one time about writing a book about it. And so I said something to Chris and Chris says, well, I know a man named William White or I've had email exchanges with a man named William White. And uh, why don't I get in touch with him and see what, if he can offer us any insight in what to do about writing a book. Chris got in touch with uh, Mr. White and uh, and we eventually uh, sent him our stuff that we had. And he was like, man, you guys really just have, um, you know, just golden nuggets here. And uh, and so we met with him and then he actually, um, you know, requested that we help him uh, do research and write an article um, for the public would be for the publication in his uh, revised edition of Slaying the Dragon. And so from around whenever we met Bill, uh, and I'm sure Chris has the dates, up until the publication of the article, there was about two years of some real intense, uh, uh, real intense investigation and research. I mean, uh, Chris and I went to the A archives twice uh, I, you know, I got I hopped in and on a plane so many times going to different places to see people's archives and, and, um, 
it, it was a very, it was really a wonderful time. Actually, I missed the research part of, uh, of what we do today, to be honest with you. I mean, it's still, it still comes in and we still learn new things, but it was nothing like those two years that we spent doing uh, that. I mean, I felt like, I literally felt like I was in school again because I had just had so much new stuff coming at me to process. So, um, so that's kind of, that's where we really started learning about Lexington and the types of treatments that were available to addicts before, um, you know, NA came available. And then we also learned the role that AA played in, uh, in us, uh, you know, um, well, in, in recovery period, okay, because uh, really our program is an adaptation of the idea that an alcoholic uh, can help, you know, two alcoholics can help one, uh, one another recover from drinking. And our, you know, our, our program is really a basis of that idea that is just transferred into uh, can help an addict, um, you know, lose the desire to use and uh, live a clean life. So um, that's really, uh, really what our presentation is about, is how that idea is trans transferred and transmitted into um, to what we have today, which is, you know, amazing, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I'll add just a couple other thoughts on this. One, um, there are very interesting side stories of kind of unintended things that have happened through um, doing research. So like, you know, Boyd and Danny did a lot of stuff up in the Philadelphia area, interviewing people and so forth. And that's great because it's preserving stuff for the fellowship. But, you know, in the process or, you know, side stories that maybe we'll talk about later, you know, it, it re-engages a, a past member, you know, and, so there's also these really interesting kind of unintended outcomes from exploring, uh, you know, the, our fellowship's history. You know, one of the questions that you guys had kind of inquired about was, you know, what was it like uh, being an addict before Narcotics Anonymous? And, you know, a couple quotes that I wanted to share. One's from 1959, uh, and it's from a, a documentary that was done in L.A. called Hellflower. And the narrator says, we wanted to give an upbeat note to this show. Uh, and, but the deeper we got into the research, the more we discovered about the problem, we could find no real answers, no real hope. And so, you know, that was kind of like one outlook. There was, and that was kind of based on like not seeing hope for recovery. And then there was kind of another side to that coin, which is, this quote, a dope addict is a disease carrier and the disease he carries is worse than smallpox and more terrible than leprosy. Why not isolate him as you would a leper? And, you know, we've seen that type of uh, approach of, you know, you know, how do we quarantine, isolate uh, folks and particularly through incarceration. And so a, a big thing that uh, existed both before NA and its early years was just the belief that addicts uh, couldn't recover, that once an addict, always an addict. And Jimmy talks about that tired old lie. And it's one of his, I think, great contributions of saying, you know, challenging that tired old lie, once an addict, always an addict. Um, but it, it took time uh, for that 
shift to happen where people began to not only believe that recovery was possible, but that people with addiction deserve recovery and that people with addiction, when they get into recovery, can offer just, you know, become tremendous assets to their families and their communities and, and so forth. You ready? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> All right, guys. This has been such a uh, a crazy kind of toss up kind of thing about when did it actually start? Was it August seventeenth or was it October fifth? You know, what I'm I, saying? I've I've heard so many different things. You know, and I I think about what Mason come to me and I'm working in the yard, and he's like, "Hey, we're going to start a podcast." And I was like, "What?" You know, I thought that was way out of our realm of any kind of possibility, but thinking about when did NA actually start? Was it August 17th or was it October 5th? And I know that there was something else that happened in September and it's really cool that we're in 2023 right now. And this we're in September. What is today? Sixth. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I know it's, uh, it's right around this time, 60 years ago. And actually they're going to, huh? 70. 70. Okay. Yeah. I need to work on my math skills. Yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll start with with one kind of I love this question. I'll start with a slightly different answer and then ask Boyd to kind of talk about the, uh, you know, where the start date may be. But I think that like one question that comes up to me for this is. Why are dates important? You know, like, why is it that, um, you know, we like to focus on a founding date? You know, when did we start? When did we begin? And. I don't have a lot of answers to that, but I think there's a lot of, you know, it creates an emotional connection to something that's been incredibly significant and transformative in one's life. And I think that's why we get, can get really kind of interested in understanding when did we begin or when, you know, same thing with, you know, AA's uh, founding date and so forth. People really celebrate that because it really represents a, a kind of a new, um, a new destiny for people that didn't exist prior to that. But with that being said, Boyd could probably talk a little bit about how we think about founding dates and so forth. Okay, he's talking, so he's giving me the, or he's chewing, so he's giving me the mic here. So with a, with a lot of things, you know, uh, I think it was a great example that you gave. When did the podcast start? When did you, you go back to, here's when the idea was posed, here's when we planned it and here's when we recorded our first interview and then here's when we launched our first episode and so forth. And I think, you know, when we think about history, uh, we think a lot about, you know, that you have a date of a first meeting and you have a, so many things that preceded that. And then, so we end up talking a lot about, you know, the July 53 date and have some sources for that and so forth. Um, but you could also argue things like, well, maybe NA as we know it didn't really begin to 1960 because we stopped following traditions and we didn't quite look the way that we look like it today. But AA has got the same kind of, you know, unclear history where it, they were in this embryonic stage for a number of years. I mean, they existed for, you know, essentially 15 years before they even had tradition. So, they, of course, they looked incredibly different. Uh, but it's a great question about um, 
you know, what's our founding date? And then, the, you know, another sub question to that is, you know, why do we, why do we focus on that? Why are those things important to many of us? So, great question. And it's interesting. I smiled when you said it. So August 17th is the actual first date of the organizational, the seven organizational meetings that Jimmy and I think six others uh, had uh, for the formation of Narcotics Anonymous officially. And guys, I can't stress enough how lucky we are to have those organizational minutes still with us because I really truly do kind of think about it like from the standpoint of my home group and when my home group started and the minutes from that and you know they, they don't exist anymore. And then you've got October the 5th which is the actual uh, first date that they had a, a open to the uh, open to members, if you will, meeting, outside meeting. Now, what you have before that is you have, uh, where are our July 73, or excuse me, July 53 uh, date? I mean, it doesn't have a, uh, a date like, you know, July 1st, July 30th or anything like that. Uh, where I think that comes from is that in 1966, uh, Jimmy wrote his story uh, in the very second Little White Book publication. And in there, he says, a group of us started uh, in July of 1953. Now, what we also know is um, we have an interview from a man named Jack Crows, uh, a member of AA, who <clears throat> gave um gave a um, <coughs> had an interview with the board of trustees in 1986 and Jim, um, Jack was actually around in the very very early days um, and he claims that actually he st he started a meeting in June of 53 and that Jimmy actually came at the end of June and took over that meeting he says he really doesn't remember the name of it but then in our research, Chris and I have actually found um, where they talk about either Addicts Anonymous meetings or uh, NA, Narcotics Anonymous meetings, before uh, the June 1953. You've got one that comes out of a book that uh, is going to, I think the book's publication is 1952. And I don't know whether that's January of 52 or December of 52, but you even, no matter when it is, it's, um, you still got to have about a 90 day lead time between writing the book and it getting published. And um, it talks about that in LA uh, at a town council meeting, they were talking about uh, creating a hospital for addicts and exploring that idea. And in this book, uh, it states that uh, that members from uh, Narcotics Anonymous and also Addicts Anonymous t attended and gave their stories. So those are that's actually the um, that right there is really um, something that lets me know that that we had stuff going on before our official July 1953 start date that Jimmy says we started. 
But it, here's something that Chris brings home a lot. And in Jimmy's 20th anniversary talk, Jimmy talks about how we started way before uh, we started as a need. Okay. Um, I got and, that quote right here, Boyd. So, okay. Th thanks for me. So, we started long before NA was a reality, even in name. We grew out of a need. We grew out of a need, and we found those of us who were members had come into AA and found we re could recover. In AA, we found out that many addicts were still going down the road of degradation and death, and we thought it was right that we should try to do something. So, and even a few years ago, uh, we came across a letter uh, from Jimmy's son to Jimmy, and it was dated December the 6th, 1953, and he asks Jimmy Sr., he says, how are your Addicts Anonymous meetings going? Okay. So, you know, it's really um, very interesting from that standpoint. And I'm going to go back to something that I, always, that I really have uh, finally through my process of thinking about this start date stuff come to realize. And this is the theory that I go on, guys. And there's a, a man named Dr. Ernie Kurtz, who uh, wrote uh, a book called Not God, which is about the beginnings of AA. And he was really the first, he's a Harvard trained professor, guys, a historian. And so he was the first to really um, start doing some serious academic writing about the history of AA. And, um, Many people had asked him, you know, when did he think that AA actually started? Um, and he says, you know, guys, it really doesn't matter. What needs what we need to be thankful for is that it just did start. And uh, and so and I really just finally come to that conclusion, you know, that it's uh, uh, it, that's really it. Uh, it it, um, it was all really and truly around the 50s, early 50s. To put a date on it uh, is just like Chris said. When are you going to, exactly how are you going to mark that, you know, um, when the idea started? Yeah, again, I think maybe I'm answering my own question of why do we, you know, like, you know, having a, a founding date or celebrating how long we've been around. I mean, I think it's because it's just, you know, an acknowledgement of a very uh, impactful change that happened because it's it's not just the addict, right? It's uh, their family, their community that has benefited from this. So part of what, what I do is like, there's so many things along this, you know, kind of timeline that are moments to celebrate. So I celebrate when, you know, Bill met Dr. Bob, you know, and they made this discovery. And I celebrate when, Dr. Tom went to the narcotic farm in 1939 and got the big book and said, I think this can work for me. And I celebrate when Houston Sewell got sober and ends up going to Lexington and starting the Addicts Anonymous group in February of 47. I celebrate when Danny C gets out and goes to New York and says, I'm going to make a run of this and try to get meetings going. And I celebrate when Jimmy gets into the AA in 1950 and when people started saying we need to do something for the addict and we stuck with it and persevered um, with all the, the different difficulties and challenges and obstacles. Like for, for us, like, um, you know, we don't 
face those same sort of concerns. We go to NA events and people are wearing NA t-shirts and nobody's, nobody's given a second thought to it. Nobody's thinking, Hey, the police may come in and bust us. They may arrest us. You know, nobody's got that concern. And that was just not the reality, which our fellowship started. And so again, it's celebrating, you know, that, that courage and that sacrifice. And I'm going to move us forward just a, a little bit, um, kind of around NA's growth and so forth. And, um, you know, I think some of the questions that you were interested in around the basic text, like uh, we know there was an interest in a loan in a book, uh, for, you know, as far back as 72, the Board of Trustees reached out and asked people to submit input, but nothing really happened, you know, and so we had this really kind of like slow growth. You know, these numbers are going to be off somewhat, um, but, you know, they're kind of based on what NA World Services has. You know. So by 1977, there's 764 known NA meetings in the world. And Bo says, I'm going to go out to the World Convention in San Francisco to try to find out, you know, what is happening with a book? Is there a book being written and so forth? And, you know, I often wonder, like, would I have gotten into recovery if Bo hadn't done that, you know, that 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 member took the initiative to go and try to uh, find an answer to a question about how do we get a book? And so so part of this is that both with AA's experience and as reflected in ours, that having a primary book that lays out our experience that can be shared with addicts, or, you know, wherever they are, um, was really critical for our growth as a fellowship. And so 1977, 764 meetings, roughly 3,300 meetings when the basic text comes out, it's first published in 83, and, uh, you know, the most recent counts around uh, just under 72,000 weekly meetings. So the, the basic text has been, you know, undeniably critical to uh, the growth of our, our fellowship. Yeah, you know, uh, something that I think about is um, this. St one of the stories that I really like is the uh, during the writing is is the long distance phone call. Um, I like I like that, and I also like the uh, story. I believe I heard you tell about the gentleman who rode the bicycle from Nebraska to Miami, Florida, to one of the literature conferences. It's just like the sacrifices that are paid, you know, when I came into the fellowship, all I had to do, and I was bitching about having to pay $10 to go get a book that I could just walk right up to the shelf and, and grab it out of. But, you know, that's why I'm so grateful for what you guys have put together and, and being able to know the price that was paid. I think, I think it, it makes you extremely grateful for where you are now, you know? So I mentioned that the uh, impact of the book has been, uh, played a critical role in our growth as a fellowship, but man, what a phenomenal story it is just about how that book was put together. And I know, you know, Boyd would love to, you know, share some of those stories because he's gotten to speak with people that were a part of that long phone call and the long distance calls. And um, so boy, why don't you talk about, about like how service was just so different back then as compared to what it's like now. And it, it was real, real sacrifice. 
It really was. I mean, um, you know, the thing to remember about this, the writing of the basic text and the basic text was written over seven, uh, a period of uh, at seven world literature conferences that were that were uh, set up around the the around the United States, and um, they were uh, two in the Midwest, one on the West Coast, and the rest were on the East Coast. And um, you know, there was it was a period of I'm not exactly sure a period of a little over right at two years total, I think, but. What you've got to realize, and I mean really and truly, is this is an unfunded project, okay? An unfunded project. And it's not that the World Service Office did not want to fund it, but the World Service Office did not have the funds to do it. It's very simple. They were just making money off selling pamphlets in the little white book, and that was it. And, um, and so the people, you know, we have, we've been able to, through the minutes, we've been able to uh, recognize that there were 412 people through all, all seven conferences that uh, that announced that or wrote that they were there in the minutes. Now, what we don't know are the people who didn't actually, who chose to be anonymous and say that we're not here. I have met one person that said his wife uh, was at a conference, but she chose not to, to put her name down because she was a nurse and she was she had, you know, professional uh, concerns. And we also don't know the members that were in the 14 different uh, literature, local literature committees that put in input and stuff like that. We don't know how many that is. But you got to realize all this stuff, all these people that traveled, um, they spent their own money. I mean, you know, it was not it was a non-funded project. So that's one of the first things right there. One of the. Um, <laughs> One of the things that uh, that needs to be remembered is um, is that a man named Jim Nichols uh, out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, he was the second World Lit Conference chairperson, and he was wondering exactly how do I, you know, let people know that we're going to be having a a, um, a a conference here, and so. Uh, he and five other guys actually went and sold plasma, sold their blood so that they could buy stamps uh, to be able to, you know, make flyers and send those flyers to groups around here. I mean, that's just, that is an amazing story right there that needs to be preserved. I mean, you've got people that were, you know, um, George R. Uh, from Philadelphia, now out of Florida, sold his washer and dryer so that he could buy a um, train ticket to go to Lincoln. And um, and George says that that uh, you know he started out with something like seventy dollars and was broke before the World Convention because it was held right before the uh, literature conference. And he was broke before the World Convention was over, but he said that just became the the MO for the literature conference. It says, "Look, just just come. We'll figure all that stuff out later." And um, you know, Charles K, who lives in Florida now, talks about how 
said it was an amazing energy spirit. He says, you know, you would be sitting around and he said, just all of a sudden trays of peanut butter sandwiches would show up, you know, and people, members that were in the community would make food for them and do stuff like that. And so, I mean, that, you know, you, you spoke of uh, the telephone call. I mean, uh, that was a situation where Greg had written the first draft, Greg P had written the first draft to the chapter six, which is the essays on the traditions for our basic text. And he lived in Oregon and he wasn't able to make it to Memphis because of some financial hardships. And um, uh, so they discussed ways to be able to get that material to Memphis. One of them was to drive, he was gonna drive to Portland put it on a plane, airship it down to Memphis. Um, you know, and in, in the end, they decided that that was going to take too long. I think it was going to take either 24 or 36 hours. And they, you know, there, there was a, um, there was a, a spirit of getting it done while they were there. Get it, let's, you know, we got to get it done. The addicts are dying. We need to get this done. And so they chose to, um, they chose to allow Greg to dictate it over telephone from, from Oregon to um, a, a little girl by the name of Molly who sat in a chair on Bo's briefcase, okay, because she wasn't quite tall enough to get to the, the, uh, the typewriter. And uh, so we've got pictures of her sitting on the briefcase and Bo rubbing her shoulders and also holding the phone while she did the typing. And, uh, you know, Greg tells at a history conference that it was two telephone calls totaling over six hours. Um, and I had a chance later on to talk with Greg's uh, wife, Lois P. And I asked Lois if she remembered that call and she said oh yes she says our telephone was cut off for about two months because of that phone call so it was greg that was actually paying for the phone call and uh, that was a time when it was landlines and you know you had to pay for long distance telephone calls and bo told me a story one time that he said now boyd if you were a member of the uh, the committee and he said, you didn't have your phone cut off at least once or twice. He says, that just meant that you really weren't doing all that much. So, you know, that was, uh, and that was the MO of what was going on at that particular time. Um, you know, you mentioned the gentleman who, you know, rode his bike and, uh, you know, he, he rode his bike from uh, Lincoln to Miami, first to go to the uh, World Convention and then the Lit Conference. And he talks about how he really, you know, he wanted more of what he'd experienced at the other ones, and which is this real sense of um, fellowship and support. And kind of back to what Boyd was talking about with Jim, uh, you know, the, the desire to make sure that people had a voice and the desire to make sure that folks were included and the desire to make sure that no voices were excluded or left out really led to extraordinary efforts to get the word out to as many people as possible. And that's a, a really kind of powerful thing. Um, you, you, one of the questions that you test, texted was like, you know, why did people feel like we needed a, a book? And 
uh, you know, one, I talked about how slow the growth of NA had been, and you know, I think is is a, a different way to um, you know carry a message. And so there, there's a couple things, and like with history, I love trying to just use people's own words or or pull from things that were originally written. And when we when we looked at some of this stuff, like uh, and came across like old newsletters like the Rainbow Connection, you know, they had this beautiful thing where they talked about uh, where, where they said that addicts all over the world will have the Narcotics Anonymous book for comfort and for study. And then they said, when we find ourselves by ourselves, we need not be alone. We will have our book and we'll have each other. And that's kind of a, you know, like a broad, nice theme about uh, why a book was important and so forth. But on a, another real practical and specific way, you know, we had this opportunity to interview a woman named Nikki. And Nikki got into recovery in Southern California. And when the fourth World Lit Conference was being held in April of 81, right before the World Service Conference, the Great Review Forum had been out, and she was going there to cast the, the, the vote from her area that they didn't support this because they thought that this was the final draft. They didn't realize it was something for review. And so she gets in. I'm just going to kind of quote her because it's her words. She says, quote, so I'm sitting there halfway directly opposite Bo. And as each person talked about their area and the state they came from and the area they came from and how there was no period, how they didn't have meetings, how they didn't have a book, and how they didn't have something to take to the newcomer who was brand new, or sometimes they would drive 200 miles to a meeting. Mississippi to Louisiana, different places like that. And I was so used to California where even though we were starting meetings, in a half hour, I could be somewhere. And then eventually towards that time, I could be at a meeting every single day and not have to drive. And so for me, it was a shock to hear that there weren't meetings like that everywhere. I thought it was the same everywhere. And to hear each one of these people talk, by the time they got to me, I was in tears because I realized that addicts were dying and that we needed to carry the message better. And the only way to do that would be the way that the forefathers of the other program had done it and to write a book that could be sent anywhere and could be read by that new addict at three o'clock in the morning when he or she didn't want to call. So that's just such a... A, a powerful thing and it also speaks to like you know why is collecting history important because these types of thoughts and experiences can you know be lost and and forgotten and it's just important to preserve those and then she had an, another experience that also speaks to this where she uh <clears throat> goes to the fourth or the fifth world lit conference in warren ohio which is end of june of 81 into early july and they were asked to check in with this couple that was kind of new and they were like, they were loners, you know, they, there was no NA fellowship in Cincinnati. And she says, she says, and it, it still brings tears to my eyes. And he's standing there. They had six months clean that they had been hanging on to the recovery with that white woman that they had in priests. Chuck asking, but how long have you been clean? And I said, five years. And he burst into tears and I thought, I didn't mean to hurt his feelings. And he said, I didn't know an addict could stay clean that long. That was the best part to me, the hope. Because like I said, I was kind of spoiled. 
already had the hope and I didn't know that others did. And so that really kind of speaks about, you know, like some real specific reasons why members felt like we needed needed our own book. You know, it can be shared. People can read it when they don't feel like picking up the phone or they feel like it's too late at night to call someone. Um, and as a way for identification and transmitting the message and, and so forth. And, and again, uh, just really kind of powerful uh, memories and stories shared by some of the people that we've been able to interview. You gonna go? Yeah. You want me well, I, I just, I just, while we were talking about this, I wanted to to bring this up to Chris, you know, when you were, when you were down here with us at the out of the darkness convention, you had the, you were given the presentation about the basic text and, there was a member in there that had been clean prior to the basic text being here and he got to share his experience. And, and for me, I know that's one of the most touching and, and eye opening experiences that I've ever had in this fellowship to hear him share and, and be moved to tears, sharing his experience about how important this book was to the fellowship and how it kind of solidified us as, as a real means of recovery once we got that book man and i i just if do you remember that uh oh yeah I, it's so funny i don't remember that but um i'd love to hear uh, any other recollections that you have on it but uh, particularly what this member shared but it's you know like you're absolutely right about you know the gratitude and the for the people, particularly then, like, you know, in the sixth edition, it says, you know, many of us have never known recovery without the basic text. And so it's just impossible to kind of, if you've always known NA with the basic text, it's impossible to not know what to know what it's like without it, you know. And so you've got these opportunities where somebody may say, well, let me tell you what it's like. What's been yeah, he was clean 20 years before the basic text came out, so. Yeah. That pretty much narrows it down. That we pretty know much it narrows it down to who it could be, but yeah. Oh, I remember now, yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing I was wanting to say about, you know, how important the basic text was, was, uh, and this is my experience, uh, getting to treatment in June of 2017, running around the facility looking for a basic text, because I knew about Narcotics Anonymous. I just never practiced the program at all. Been to a few meetings, and I was like, man, when are they going to say this prayer? Because I got to go, you know that kind of state of mind and, and actually getting this book in my hand and reading it. I was like, who has wrote this? Cause I mean, it's almost like they're reading my mail, you know? And, and I was, I was running around the treatment center. I was like, Hey, y'all know who wrote this stuff or, you know, cause I'm trying to figure it out. And that's where the history really uh, got to me the most is because Hey, some of these people that did some of these writings in here, there are a possibility that they're still alive. You know, we could probably meet some of these people and then come to find out having a conversation with Bo. I don't know how much, you know, that he wrote in the book, but when you was talking about 77 in San Francisco, when he's out there looking, you know, what's going on with the book. And then knowing that Greg had moved to Georgia or Southern Tennessee, somewhere in that area to get this whole thing, you know, really rolling. And, you know, to hear about the phone call between Oregon, 
Atlanta. You know, or Memphis, Atlanta. Men- Memphis. Yeah. Memphis. Okay. Memphis you know, and I've seen the pictures that you all have of him actually, you know, holding that phone to her while she's typing. And I can't imagine what the bill was on a six hour phone call <laughs> across the country, you know, in 78 or nine at that time. I don't know exactly what. Yeah. 80, 81. January. 80, yeah. 81. 81. Okay. And I don't remember the exact amount, but Lois said that it was over $300. And so you can imagine the, you know, uh, $300 in 81 is a lot of money. So, yeah. Yeah. It's funny, uh, now that you mentioned it, Mason, uh, that member who shared, there was another member with him who had over 50 years, and it was that member that reached out to Boyd that got us invited to our first convention to do a presentation in 2009 in Greenville, South Carolina. Oh, okay. Yeah. He knows who it is now. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I certainly do. Yeah. I certainly do. It's, uh, and. Uh, a wonderfully humble man who, uh, you know, is exudes the program, believe me. He Absolutely. really does. Yeah. So, yeah. That, that's one of my favorite stories is, you know, like where Greg actually moved east to to really be around Bo. And this is my understanding on it. I don't know that it to be a fact. I wasn't there. But that he actually moved out this way, that way that they could really get the, the ball rolling on this thing because he knew that Bo had a desire to get this book out yeah if i may if i may greg actually moved uh to atlanta after the book was published okay he uh uh he where i mean greg (laughs) greg and bob barrett um they they came out to the second world lit conference in uh nebraska lincoln nebraska where jimmy nichols uh hosted and what they were board of trustee members at that time and um where what happened is that um by them coming out there guys it lent um it just it lent validity to what was going on because really it was a group of people from atlanta and from the east that were really starting this and so a lot of the old timers out on the west coast were not so sure about what was going on, but because Greg and Bob came and and attended and actually helped guide a lot of the stuff that went on at the second one, um, it lent validity to this movement, if you will. And their participation in it, uh, you know, continued all the way through it. But really and truly, Greg... Um, so Greg was not li- Greg was living uh, in L.A. when the second one happened. He moved up to Oregon uh, after that, and it was not until after the book was published that Greg actually moved to Atlanta. Uh, but you got to realize there was still a lot of stuff going on in the literature movement after the book was published. There was more. There was work on. Um, I mean, this was just kicking off everything. It was more work on pamphlets. You know, there was more work. They were trying to revise the uh, Little White book, uh, but the pamphlets were mainly where they were focusing on. And, you know, so there was a tremendous amount of work that went on there in Atlanta when Greg was there. So I've just heard a lot of stories, you know, about. Yeah. uh, I actually heard that, you know, the uh, this is one addict's perception on it uh, was. N.A. was founded in California. But the heart of it was in Atlanta, Georgia. 
that's you know that was their take on it you know i i love i love that story but to mm-hmm. that to that point one thing that's interesting to me is i think it was pretty significant how there was like this urgency to get it done but they still wanted input from the whole fellowship like they they somewhere along the lines they figured out how important that that would be and i I always thought that was really cool how the input from the fellowship was prioritized to them over you know actually you know getting the thing out and getting it done as fast as possible well you talk talk about this contradiction of fast and slow you know like it's urgent but it needs to be done with a lot of thought and consideration and not rushed yeah bo writes in a letter in 1979 to greg you know that he feels like we would be poor servants if we would didn't include everybody in the in it. And he says, we'll probably be stifled with time. I'm paraphrasing, mind you. It's not an exact quote, but, you know, he knew going into it that it would take more time, but he just felt like he would be, and the quote was, a poor servant uh, had he not done that. It was real interesting to <clears throat> read the minutes and from the fourth, uh, World Lit Conference, which was after the publication of the Gray Review form when they started receiving the uh, the input because they had to develop a whole new system on how to process the input. And uh, and that continued on up until uh, the 6th. So, uh, Let me uh, um, exact with this because I got pulled up. And Greg, actually, he, he mispronounces the word. Um, he uses struggle, but in, in the letter that Bo writes to Greg in 77, he says, involving people might strangle the effort in controversy, but I really trust the spirit and believe that we'd be poor servants to leave them out. Thank you, Chris. Very That's much. Good stuff I, wanted the chance to, good. I wanted the, the chance to correct Greg at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. when do you have a chance to do that? That's awesome. <laughs> Boy, this yeah. one will go down in history. <clears throat> yeah. And Greg P., man, it's just unbelievable the contributions to the fellowship. You know, uh, one of the IPs I think about that really saved my life a bunch of times is that triangle of self obsession. You know, um, Steady wrote that on an airplane. I heard. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, anyways, fellas, unfortunately, well, we I got have, one more thing. We're just going to have to deal with it. Okay, well, I'll deal with it. Go for it. So, y'all was talking about when they was doing the whole literature thing, and I remember something. Uh, it was like a quote from Motorcycle Ed about where they was actually cutting words out and pasting them on the copies that they had, and they went back to grade school when they was putting this whole thing together. It was just amazing how this thing come together, man. It really is. It's a beautiful story. I mean, I, I love it, and I get goosebumps on my arm every time I think about it because – um, for me, guys, uh, Bo wrote a book called uh, The Story of the Basic Text, and it's it's online. You can find it. It's I mean, you can find it in PDF form and download it. Okay, it's called The Story of the Basic Text by Bo S. And that he was he wrote it about five years after uh, after the Basic Text was publicized. But for me, um, my experience in reading that book is that I could just almost watch the hand of God you know, working right through it. So it it was just, um, 
don't know. It's a, it's a wonderful thing it, that we have this book. And uh, a lot of people put in, you know, tireless hours to get it to us. And, and, and here again, it was an unfunded project, you know. And uh, their motive was people are dying of our disease. You know, we need this. So that's actually uh, what I wanted to end, end with. Um, how has, and, I, and I, I'd like each of you to answer it if you would, how has all the work and the research that you put on, how has that affected you um, and your recovery, you know, spiritually, all that, all those things? How has that affected you, all this work that you put in? That's a great question. Chris, you want to go first? Yeah, so uh, uh, a real net positive. I start off by saying that it's uh, created an opportunity for me to, uh, you know, experience the fellowship uh, around the country, a few places internationally. Um, I mean, you can't, you know, one of the things that's behind Boyd's shoulder is uh, a a certificate and a photo and a coin from the hole in the wall group at the Oregon State Penitentiary, right? So 2014 maximum security prison being invited in to do a history presentation to this large NA group that's got a waiting list for people to get in. And um, I mean, just unbelievable opportunities to to see and experience and to witness uh, the power of Narcotics Anonymous and the in influence it has on people's lives. And then, and then I always somewhat smile, smirk, cautionary tale, like um, I got divorced, separated, you know, kind of after a couple of years of heavy uh, research, this intense period of research that Boyd and I were describing. And uh, I look back at, you know, this chronology we put together that's, that I put together that was 550 some plus pages. And I'm like, man, this is really just a, a monument to the history of NA and it's a monument to the neglect of this marriage. So, you know, like when things were painful, I found solace, you know, in this, probably avoided some things through this, uh, but that's like life and recovery. You have those experiences and you try to learn from it. And then I'm not the first person where service in some ways um, is kind of used uh, to avoid maybe something painful or difficult that's going on. So that's like the other thing I think about with this is like, man, maybe things were going better if I was more engaged there. I wouldn't have put so much effort into this in a book. And I, I mean that with no disrespect or anything uh, to my to my ex-wife if she for some reason happens to listen to this. So, um, that's a that's a big question. I'm not sure if I, I I will tell you that the the um, presentation that um, Chris referenced about going to uh, the state facility uh, in Oregon and and doing the presentation there was probably one of my most moving ones for me because um, I, I was literally uh, getting ready to tell Chris I was going to stop doing presentations because I was getting burnt out on them and it you know, lit a fire under me so much that um, uh, Chris developed another uh, presentation called The History of the Traditions. And 
has kept me engaged quite a bit more. Um, it's hard to articulate the depth of knowledge that uh, I have learned about what it was like for four folks before me. So for me, it gives me this incredible sense of appreciation for what we have now, you know? I mean, <clears throat> here on the East Coast right now, it's, uh, you know, you've got, what have you got? You've probably got a thousand meetings that are ending right now on here on the East Coast, okay? How lucky we are to be able to live in a time and a place like this uh, and to have the service that you are do you guys are doing, which is having this podcast and allowing it to go uh, into prisons where it will be heard there. I mean, this is a this is just a wonderful, wonderful new form of service that technology is allowing us to have. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you it has broadened my horizons uh, as far as within being, being able to meet uh, a lot of people within NA. And uh, it's just enriched my life. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard for me to describe. I mean, I, I, I literally, guys, in my talk, say that my life changed when I met Chris Butnick, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, the two of us and the trajectory of our life uh, you know, I would not, uh, I would not have been able to do this solo by myself. And there are times, um, I mean, I just finished, I just finished a year ago, digitizing an archive and, uh, it was, it was hard to get through. It was not, I didn't have the fire in my belly like I did in the beginning. Okay. This one was hard. And, uh, but the thing that kept getting me through it is I kept telling myself that, this is going to be my contribution to NA for the, those folks that come way down the line, you know, and that's, that's the thing that kind of carries me through the times that, uh, where I get, you know, selfish and self-centered and stuff like that. Um, but I'm a history geek, man. I mean, I love this stuff. I'm a nerd, man. I, you know, I eat this stuff up. I love the stories. I could sit and listen to them for hours. So, um, so um, hopefully it's changed me for the better. I think it has. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, I'm extremely grateful for the work that both of you put in, man. It's really like, you know, from the first time watching you guys on YouTube to seeing Chris's presentation in person, uh, all th well, three presentations in person, um, you know, answering Travis's questions about who wrote this stuff and, you know, it's just really had a tremendous impact on me and my personal recovery. So I, I can't thank you guys enough for what you've done and put together. And also can't thank you guys enough for coming on here and sharing a little bit of it with us. And, you know, I wish we had four hours so that we could go through all of it, but we're going to have to do a part two. Yeah. Maybe, no maybe some other we're time. Do a part two on this, yeah. Especially that history of the tradition. <laughs> part two's fine with us. It yeah. really is. Yeah. We can do Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. And thanks again for the service you're providing. Yes, very much so. So, all right, really and truly. Thank you, guys. Okay, we'll be back. We will be back next week. We are going to start with tradition one next week.
Thank you for joining us on our Living Clean Podcast. This is another platform that we can share our message of recovery, which is an addict, any addict, can stop using drugs, lose a desire to use, and find a new way to live. Join that no matter what club. You can contact us through text. The number is 931-306-9364.